Lecture Notes, Hellenistic Philosophy, Stoicism. Much of Hellenistic philosophy was influenced by the life and ideals of Socrates. Think back to Socrates facing his death. What was his attitude towards dying? Obviously, he chose to die rather than be exiled, so that already tells us that he wasn't exactly terrified of death. And furthermore, remember that in Phaedo, Socrates even says that the philosopher desires death because the righteous person knows the state of their soul is good and is not afraid to be separated from the body since bodily reality is lesser anyways. The idea that, quote, no real harm can come to a person whose life is based on virtue and eternal values, end quote, was a major influence on the Stoics, the strand of Hellenistic philosophy we're turning to next. Unlike Epicureanism, which is named for one main philosopher behind the theory, Epicurus, there, are, there were many different Stoic philosophers. For example, Zeno of Sidium, arguably the founder of Stoicism, who tragically lost everything in a shipwreck. Uh, Seneca, tutor of the Emperor Nero, who was sentenced to death like Socrates. Epictetus, who was enslaved. His name literally means acquired. He was eventually granted freedom, but then had to flee his city after the emperor banished all philosophers. And Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor who reigned during a tumultuous time during Roman history. He is most remembered for writing meditations. It's a pretty eclectic group, but arguably what they all have in common is trauma and suffering. There are a number of lenses through which we can understand Stoicism, but I think that one of the primary motivators for Stoicism is a response to the trauma and suffering in one's own life. Stoicism embraces and accepts that we cannot control events in the world. In fact, Stoicism is famously deterministic. The Stoics believed that there is a web of causes and effects at play in the world, and that we have no control over events in the world. The Stoics' determinism was partially theologically driven. They believed that God is, quote, the logos or the rational principle pervading everything, end quote. And it might be helpful to, or interesting to keep in mind here that Christianity refers to Jesus as logos as well. By logos, the Stoics meant that God is that from which all things come, that which organizes and directs all things, and the end to which all things return. However, arguably unlike Christianity, Stoicism placed a big emphasis on God fully determining everything that occurs. Because everything that occurs is determined by logos, Stoicism says that being anxious about events in the world does us no good. So take me for example. I am often anxious over all sorts of things. I'm anxious about what other people think of me. I'm anxious about whether I locked the house and turned off the stove when leaning for work in the morning. Anxious that the persistent cough my cat has is actually bad asthma. Anxious about my sister, that she's too stressed by her demanding nursing job. You get the picture. Stoicism says that I have no control over whether of any of these events happen or not. They're part of a predetermined series of events stemming from Logos. So I should give up being worried and upset about what has happened or might happen. Instead, I should turn inward and focus on the one thing I can control, my will, my character or virtue. Furthermore, the Stoics believed that our goal should be to make our own life a microcosm of the rational order of the universe, or again, Logos. We should mimic and mirror the divine rationality permeating everything. 
But in order to do this, we have to overcome and rid ourselves of passions and emotions, which are contrary to this divine rationality. Epictetus, remember from above, a Stoic, discusses several of these themes, writing in his book, The Enchiridion, with regard to whatever objects give you delight, are useful, or are deeply loved, remember to tell yourself of what general nature they are, beginning from the most insignificant things. If, for example, you are fond of a specific ceramic cup, remind yourself that it is only ceramic cups in general of which you are fond. Then if it breaks, you will not be disturbed. If you kiss your child or your wife, say that you only kiss things which are human, and thus you will not be disturbed if either of them die. And later on, section eight, don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do happen, and you will go on well. From section 16, when you see anyone weeping in grief because his son has gone abroad or is dead, or because he has suffered in his affairs, be careful that the appearance may not misdirect you. Instead, distinguish it within your own mind and be prepared to say, it is not the accident that distresses this person because it doesn't distress another person. It is the judgment which he makes about it. This last quote from Epictetus highlights an interesting um, point of intersection between Stoicism and Buddhist teaching. In particular, it's quite similar to the second arrow teaching. In the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddha speaks about the second arrow. When an arrow strikes you, you feel pain. If a second arrow comes and strikes you in the same spot, the pain will be 10 times worse. The Buddha advised that when you have some pain in your body or your mind, breathe in and out and recognize the significance of that pain, but don't exaggerate its importance. If you stop to worry, to be fearful, to protest, to be angry about the pain, then you magnify the pain 10 times or more. Your worry is the second arrow. You should protect yourself and not allow the second arrow to come because the second arrow comes from you. And this is from his book, No Mud, No Lotus. In short, both traditions are teaching that often the pain of a difficult event is not so much the event itself, but the judgment we make about the event, in Epictetus's phrasing, or the second arrow of anxiety or shame or anger from Thich Nhat Hanh. Better to simply accept the event and focus on what we can control, which is not the event itself, but our response to it. Or another way to articulate this theme comes from a metaphor Zeno and Chrysippus give in which humans are described as dogs tied to a cart. The cart is reality and it's moving in one direction that we can't change. We can fight against it and choke ourselves getting dragged along, or we can go with it and use the freedom of the leash to our advantage along the way. Furthermore, some Stoics propose that we don't just react with calm and detachment when bad things happen. The Stoic Seneca additionally proposes we have a meditation every morning to consider what could go wrong during the day. If you spend time pondering the ways your life could go wrong, then when you go through the day, you will not be disappointed if something does go wrong. One frequent objection I get from students in response to Stoicism is that it's a philosophy that undercuts human achievement and tells us to be passive and not try. But I don't think this is entirely fair as a description of Stoicism. Maybe it's partially fair. 
Instead, I want to return to this theme of control. The Stoics believed that wisdom lies in correctly discerning where we have control and where we do not. Since their outlook on the world is deterministic, they believed that we don't have control over events in the world, but let's temporarily set that aside for the moment. You could embrace aspects of Stoic teaching without fully embracing their determinism. This will be called Neo-Stoicism, and the prefix Neo signals that it's an updated and slightly changed version and not exactly 100% faithful to the original historical context. It might also help to point out some of the more positive aspects of Stoicism. As I've mentioned above, the Stoics placed a strong emphasis on cultivating virtue. Again, like their hero Socrates, who held that nothing could harm the soul of a virtuous person, the Stoics emphasized cultivating virtue since nothing can take away your virtue. In fact, remember how when we studied Aristotle, we talked about virtue being necessary for a life of eudaimonia, but not sufficient because something horrible might happen and prevent you from flourishing? The Stoics take a very hard line here. They argue that a truly virtuous person will always have eudaimonia, since all that is needed for happiness is one's own virtue. Finally, I want to note that Stoicism was also quite radically egalitarian. Stoic practices are easily accessible to all people, regardless of their status or wealth or education, but the Stoics also explicitly wrote and stated that all human beings are siblings. As your textbook so nicely puts it, we are all made of the same stuff, fated to travel the same mortal road, and part of the same universal community composed of humans and benign providence. We tend to take this idea for granted nowadays, but historically, it was actually a pretty radical claim.